listening to The Lid Is On with me, Connor Lennon. And on this week's show, we're going to continue our January theme, helping you to find out more about the people behind the news at the UN and help you to get to know us a bit better and find out how we tick. My guest today is Mita Hassali, Deputy Director of the News and Media Division at the UN and the person in overall charge of the UN's news output, which at last count was nine languages, but I think there may be more. We'll find out a bit more from Mita in just a second. But first of all, where are you right now? Well, if truth be told, I'm very far east of the Suez. I'm actually currently in Thailand on my way to India. I had a, an assignation with a 92-year-old aunt of mine who insisted that she wanted to travel after years of being home with COVID. And she said, why don't we meet up in Thailand? So we did. She's now gone off to the northern part of Thailand without me, I wow. mind you. But she has somebody else traveling with her. Wow, she sounds very intrepid. Runs in the family, I think. (laughs) You're heading to India. That's where you're from. Yes, indeed. I'm from Calcutta. That's where I was born. And my family, my mother's family is from Calcutta. My father's family is from the tech hub, Bangalore. But I grew up mostly in Bombay. Right. So I presume that means you were quite multilingual from an early age then. Yes, multilingual. But, you know, the strangest... uh, problem is the legacy of the Brits. I mean, unfortunately, though my parents spoke other languages, the only language they had in common was English. So they tended to only speak English to each other. So that's what I grew up listening to for much of the time. But my mother was insistent that I had to learn Bengali, uh, which is where she came from. She came from Bengal. And in school, I had to learn Hindi, of course, and I had to learn Marathi, which was the state language. And I had a peculiar uh, school where they insisted we had to learn French as well. So growing up, I was regularly studying five languages. Yeah, I remember meeting an Indian UN family when I was in Geneva and the mother was from the north and the father was from the south. And and they didn't speak each other's state language, so they spoke to each other in English and Hindi. So these kids, they grew up speaking both state languages, English, Hindi, and then because they were in Geneva, French. And they were about four years old, and they spoke everything fluently, which which blew my mind and changed my mind about, you know, the the power of uh, the brain to absorb lots of different languages at the same time. Yeah, indeed. It's something you do by osmosis, I guess, when you're surrounded by it. But, you know, most people in Europe are also uh, kind of well-versed in multiple languages as well. And, of course, at the UN, we expect it of most people. Well, indeed. Um, And we'll come to the multilingualism in a bit, but let's talk a bit more about your UN journey. I mean, how did you get to be running news in several languages at the UN? So it's always uh, a bit of... uh, a mystery how you end up doing what you do. I'm sure you can think that about yourself as well, Very Connor. True. Um, and it is, uh, you know, twists of fate here and there. Uh, I think my uh, UN journey is measured in my mind by lots of major events at, you know, on the global stage that I can recall and thinking, oh, where was I when that happened? And kind of casting my mind back to that. So, for example, when... Um, In 94, we had the multi-party elections in South Africa, and it looked like apartheid was going to be dismantled. For many of us who had only known a a world where apartheid was a fact, South Africa was reviled by the international community. It was at the receiving end of economic sanctions, of an arms embargo, and, you know, recurrent votes in the General Assembly. Um... And then this happened, and 
I remember all of us just kind of pinching ourselves and thinking, good grief, how is this, what is this world coming to? How is peace breaking out everywhere? And of course, I had, uh, you know, I, I wasn't able to be there for, for those uh, elections and for that particular operation. But that was a time when you had the beginnings of this new generation of peace operations. It was both peacekeeping and it was election monitor monitoring. And um, it was just an amazing time to work at the UN. I can, without dating myself too much perhaps, I can say that I was at the UN when President Gorbachev came and there was another example of peace breaking out and he, he did some press conferences there and that was the beginning of uh, perestroika. And basically a shift in, you know, in the nation state system. Everything changed after after that happened. And then, of course, we had lots of other steps going towards 1989 and the um, end of South Africa's rule over Namibia and the elections that were held there, in which the UN played a very major role and a very big, complex, uh, multi-dimensional peacekeeping operation that it was. Uh, colleagues went from our department and some went for long periods of time. I worked at that time in something called the Public Inquiries Unit, which still exists today. And it fields information uh, requests that come basically from all over the US, uh, some from Canada, but mostly the US, and responds to, and it, this is pre-digital era, responds to all of those queries that come in. A lot of them were from educators, uh, from young people, from civil society, um, and they would just ask very simple questions about the UN, and sometimes they were more complex. And that's where I worked when I got to go to Namibia to help monitor the elections in the northern part of the country. We often hear that the post-World War II order is breaking down. Of course, the UN is, is intrinsic to that post-World War II order. And I was wondering if you think that that is making our job in terms of people putting out information and news about the UN, more difficult? You know, I think a lot of this is cyclical. Um, the pendulum swings in one direction, it swings in another direction. I think the organization has been through quite a few of these existential moments where these are almost death blows, it would seem, to the very principles that the organization was uh, created out of. Um, but I feel that, you know, there is no replacement for the UN. And as you know, there was a rather famous uh, former Undersecretary General, Sir Brian Urquhart, who used to say if the UN didn't exist, we'd have to we'd have to invent it now and just see how important the UN is by pulling it out of a place. And he used to always cite, he used to tout the example of Cyprus, for example. He said, you know, it looks like a kind of sleepy, dozy little operation, but God forbid, if you were to pull out those uh, peacekeepers, you would potentially see mayhem break out. And um, I think uh, that the post-World War order obviously is going through lots and lots of very major challenges, uh, but, and we all often get asked about this, is the UN fit for purpose? And I think the real, really important question to be asked here is, can the member states make it fit for purpose? Can they make the changes? Can they switch gears so that the organization can then respond to these new kinds of demands? 
And peacekeeping is a case in point. How much has peacekeeping changed over the decades? Uh, I talked to you about multidimensional peacekeeping, where, you know, they weren't there just to keep the fighting parties apart. They were there to do a whole lot of other things in uh, places like Namibia and Cambodia. Very complex uh, peacekeeping operation as well. Um, so as long as the organization is flexible enough and has leadership from the Secretary General and others who can basically use their vision to impress upon member states what needs to be done in order to meet these demands, I think the organization will measure up. But it's not, it's, it's not one of those linear processes, you see. I think we're going to have a few steps back and then a few steps forward. And in terms of the way we approach news or what we call news, uh, we used to be called, for example, the Department of Public Information. Now it's called Global Communications. What kind of a shift do you think that implies? Well, I think public information was what, you know, we were anointed as in the earliest days of the organization. It goes back to 1946, the resolution that was adopted, creating the organization, the, the department, excuse me. Um, and it very soon, I think, became an outdated term. To too many people, it had um, kind of shades of sounding like a a ministry of propaganda, if you will. And uh, public information, I think, was put down over and over. But on the other hand, I think global communications has a more modern ring to it. I think it shows that we're trying to communicate. We're not just putting out information willy-nilly Um, we're really trying to tailor that information so that we communicate with audiences and in some instances allow audiences to communicate back with us. This, of course, is the huge um, shift that we've seen with with the uh, inception of social media, where audiences around the world, anybody, uh, can basically make his or her voice heard. Global communication suits that way better. Yeah, we talked about the social media issue with uh, Melissa Fleming, the head of global communications last week. And of course, this is something that we do at UN News as well. It's um, It must be a constant worry. Don't you think the fact that we are having to communicate through these platforms and some of these platforms themselves look a little bit shaky? I think social media is something that's here to stay. I think it's going to go through lots and lots of uh, transformations. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of new platforms come along. We're going to hopefully see more responsibility from the tech giants who run these platforms. Um, Perhaps there will be the beginnings of regulation and governance from um, regional organizations like the EU, which has started now wanting to regulate some of what Meta slash Facebook is doing. So I, I believe that it's here to stay. I do think that it is a concern uh, for anybody who works in an intergovernmental organization that we really have minimal control over a lot of what the people who run these uh, platforms allow and what they will hopefully take action against, what they will disallow. 
And I think it has to be part of a conversation. Um, we are in a particular situation as, as an intergovernmental organization so that uh, some of the social media platforms still want to engage with us. They see this as an important space. Uh, others, I don't know that they are that interested. Um, and I think it depends on the nature of the platform and how mature the platform is as well. Because let's face it, the platforms themselves in the greater scheme of things are not that many decades old. So they too are on a learning curve of theirs. And I guess there may be a time where we will decide that there is a particular platform that we want to disengage from. But at this point in time, I think we have to be in there with a lot of the other players and make our presence felt and heard. And you want that presence to be felt and heard all over the world. Countries, of course, have differing levels of press freedom, but we want to communicate to as many of these countries as possible. I was wondering, to what extent do you get complaints or uh, about about the coverage uh, because something is said on UN News that might embarrass a particular country or government, a particular member state. And how does the UN deal with that? I think here too, Connor, there's been quite a lot of evolution. When I cast my mind back to the earlier um, incarnation of UN News, which, as you know, used to be called UN News Center, and it had a parallel presence of UN Radio, UN News Center was very limited in what it could produce and what it could publish. And it was those were the early days of online news. Um, the model that we kind of emulated was that of the major wire agencies, Reuters, AFP, uh, Agence, um, AP. But things moved on from that. And then we had to, of course embrace a lot of these shifts in the industry to communicate in a way that audiences would find what we're putting out there palatable. So coming back to that, how do you do it uh, in a way that you you balance what the member states expect and what we feel is important for audiences, global audiences, as you just mentioned, for them to learn about the work of the United Nations? And I think here too, we've been engaged in constant conversations about editorial guidelines. And um, we have these conversations, you've been part of them. And I think that we are learning almost every other month about something new, how to handle something. We don't typically get that many complaints in recent times, even though there are, of course, major um you know, uh, conflagrations underway. There's a war in Europe. There are many other wars in the Middle East, etc. Um, there are lots of human rights violations, uh, which we have to uh, talk about. And all of this is often seen as a thorn in the side of one or other country. I would say that we have honed how we write about this to try and make it more uh, balanced where we can and to, of course, always quote UN officials and UN intergovernmental bodies and their decisions. But on the other hand, we do give voice to people who are trying to make change happen. And for the most part, um, as long as it's understood that these voices are voices in support of UN priorities, campaigns, um, things that we're trying to do to change uh, the way 
the world is basically perceived or the way people are being treated in different parts of the world, I think member states are quite understanding. And listen, there's not a single member state that would not be criticized about something, frankly. There's not a single member state that hasn't got some kind of human rights skeleton in the closet. So if they all wanted to jump up, they all certainly could say something. But I think increasingly they understand too that we are just trying to package this information in a holistic and a very balanced, as I said earlier, way and to kind of make people around the world understand what it is the UN is here to do. Do you think there'll be more UN news languages in the future? I never came into this looking to expand the empire, as it were. I think it was always a question of what we have, we try to do well. We try to, uh, you know, polish our uh, outputs and basically make sure that distribution is given priority because it's just no good to create stuff in different languages and then not to really be able to put that much effort into getting it out there because this is a very complex world we live in and we have a lot of competition. I mean, there's a lot of noise out there, as you know. Um, And and it's not just in English and a few other languages. It's in other languages. I mean, I come from India and there are hundreds of television channels in India. So how do you get your word, you know, the, the good word out there, as it were? So, yes, of course, I would love it if we had if more languages, but only if the resources were made available. Right now we have nine languages. Hindi is the latest to join the team, but we also have a fledgling um project which involves uh, Urdu, which uh, is a language spoken by hundreds of millions of people as well. But we don't have the resources to do that in the way we are doing with the other languages. So yes, it would be wonderful to expand this, but not unless the resources are made available. In terms of news, what was your highlight of 2022? Well, I think you've heard this many times, but I'm going to say it again. I think for me, it's a sad reason to point it out as a highlight. But when I was back from a short break in February and there was a sudden meeting of the Security Council, and you know what I'm referring to, it was when Russia attacked Ukraine. And the entire news and media division was following this meeting and working through the platform we use Uh, until well after midnight. I have never seen a coming together like that. For me, the highlight was just to see how we were all rowing together in the same direction. Again, the reason was not a happy one, but just to basically underline that this is a team that is so professional. They really care and they know that the UN was central to what was unfolding and that they wanted to be there to carry this in real time and to make sure that the correct message without all the filters of uh, third party flat platforms got put out. So that was the beginning of the year. But I think for me personally, one of the high points was a meeting I went to and I never thought I'd say this because I'm not one for these big meetings. Uh, but it was, as you know, it was a major conference held in Fez. It was the ninth global forum Uh, uh, organized by the Alliance of Civilizations, held in Morocco uh, in November. Over a 1,000 participants, 
and they hailed from more than 100 countries. And they were, it was such an amazing opportunity because they were there to discuss issues like hate speech and intolerance and a whole lot of other related topics. And I think this is such a key uh, problem in this uh, you know, age for all of us that I think getting this group together and especially young people, it, it was really uplifting because there were hundreds of young people and they weren't just in academia. They were practitioners. They were already working in society, in communities, in NGOs to make change happen. They were fighting hate speech in their communities. I had one session with them where I threw out the challenge. I said, give me a definition of hate speech because we don't have that in the international community. Uh, the member states haven't been able to come up with it. They had 20 minutes and they came up with what I think is a pretty dynamic and impressive definition. And I thought we should actually pass it along to the member states. But beyond that, just their little personal examples of what they were doing to try and make change happen, how they were in some cases being hounded by others, by the authorities, as they pursued these very noble goals of rooting out xenophobia, intolerance, uh, hate speech, discrimination on the basis of you know, race, uh, sexual preference, gender, etc. I just had to take my hat off to them. I, I think it, it kind of filled me anew with inspiration at what can be done when people at the grassroots level get involved and take forward some of the, the kind of goals and objectives of the organization. Well, Mita, thank you very much for sharing your time in Thailand and then heading off to India as well. We wish you all the best and we look forward to seeing you back in New York very soon. <laughs> 